We're at the beginning, obviously, of Holy Week. And one of my encouragements to you would be to reflect on the passion narratives in each of the four Gospels this week. To take some time to read each account. It's amazing in this story of all stories that we come to the core of the matter. We get to understand God's intention and heart and we understand God's own person and nature from what we read in the story of Jesus' suffering and death. We're asking a lot of questions. Are we worthy of God's love? Does God love us? We're not worthy, but does God love us? When we look inside, we know the reality of our own hearts being broken, our minds being distorted. We know how fickle we can be. And I think the, the activity of self-loathing is quite common. Behind the facade, underneath the veneer. We wonder if God can be trusted. Will he be faithful? So we think about uncertainties. What will life be like after the pandemic? What will life be like after death? Can I trust God with my future and my career? Can I trust him with my finances? Will God be faithful? What about evil? We think of what happened in Atlanta. We think of what happened in Colorado, just in our own nation in the last 10 days or so, we think then more broadly about what's been going on in Myanmar for quite some time that erupted again yesterday. And we don't have to just look outside, we can look inside, we can look at our own hearts and see the reality of evil and sin, of being distorted and having false loves. What will be done about evil? What has been done about evil? And we ask these questions, longing for answers. And I would submit to you that the scriptures speak to these questions from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, and address them in powerful and beautiful ways. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, address these questions deeply as well as those Stories or the story of Jesus told as the climax of the story of God in Israel, which is the climax of the story of God in creation. And then within the Gospels, it's the passion narratives themselves that even in a more specific and targeted way address these questions. As we look at today on Palm Sunday, we're going to look at John 12 and the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But we're also going to look at John 18 and 19 in the passion narrative of John's gospel. And as we do so, we'll come back to these questions at the end and see how they've been addressed by this narrative. But first we want to see what is the defining subject of this section of the gospel according to John. And then we want to look at what are the expectations, and the defining subject is kingship, what are the expectations around the kingship or kingdom what about Jesus' redefinition of those expectations? And then thirdly, about his enthronement, the inauguration of his kingdom. So first, what is the defining topic? I said it's kingship or kingdom. The synoptic gospels are interesting. They use the phrase the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven to bring this topic to bear 
The first words out of Jesus' mouth are about the kingdom of God in Mark chapter 1. John doesn't use this expression. Sometimes he gets overlooked for his kingdom theology, but it's so deep and it's there from the beginning through the middle to the end. Think about at the beginning when Jesus encounters his first disciples and he finds Nathaniel, that skeptical one. And when Nathaniel sees Jesus's supernatural ability to have seen him under the fig tree long before he could have physically seen him, Nathaniel says, surely you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So there it is, the royal theme at the beginning. We go to the end and we see Jesus arrayed in a purple robe with a crown of thorns and the, the, the soldiers mocking him, hail king of the Jews. And we find that kingship is all there at the end of the gospel as well. And then when we think about the middle where we are in this reading from John 12, the triumphal entry, Jesus enters into Jerusalem to the cries of the crowd, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, this triumphal entry moment is narrated in each of the four Gospels. But in John's Gospel, it's the only place that the crowd adds to their quotation of the psalm. Even the King of Israel. John's Gospel narrative is all about kingship and kingdom. From start to middle to end. And this is the topic that the passion narratives wrestle with about how God would become king in and through his son, Jesus. King on earth as he has been king in heaven. So this is the defining subject. What about then the expectations? What kind of king would he be? What kind of kingdom would he establish? And it's clear what this crowd is looking for. They grab palm branches as they come out to meet Jesus on the outskirts of Jerusalem as he comes into the city. And they wave those palm branches. Well, palm branches had been used in the rededication of the temple in 165 BC after the Maccabean revolt. And palm branches, the relief of palm branches have been stamped on coins by the Jewish rebels during their two great wars with the Roman Empire in the subsequent three centuries after that Maccabean revolt. Palms were connected to national hopes and liberation. Second, the crowd quotes Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This psalm, if you go back and read the entire psalm, is all about the deliverance of Israel as a nation. Because of the steadfast love of God that endures forever. By taking this psalm up on their lips as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, they are pinning all of their nationalistic hopes and fervor upon this man coming into the city. Why had they gone out to meet him in the first place? We're told by John in John 12 that it's because they had heard of the sign that he had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. They think this man who has the power to raise a man who's been in the tomb for four days from the dead, surely he has the power to overthrow our enemies and to establish the new day that we've been longing for. And on top of these two features of that, that relay their expectations, we have also the fact that it's Passover. Jerusalem was probably about 50,000 people in its population normally. But at Passover time, Jews would flock from all over the diaspora to come to Jerusalem to remember the national liberation out of Egypt under slavery by the, by the 
the divine intervention of their God. And so there were maybe 100 to 120,000 in, in the vicinity of Jerusalem in that day, many of whom would have been camped on the outskirts of the hillsides around Jerusalem. And they certainly would have formed much of the crowd that had gone out to welcome Jesus as he came into the city. There were great hopes of a new day for the nation of Israel. And those hopes weren't entirely misplaced, honestly. They were longing for deliverance, and Jesus had come to bring a kind of deliverance. But they were, in fact, wrong expectations. And it was those wrong expectations that led these cries of Hosanna to turn a few days later to crucify him. Crucify him. When they, it became clear and apparent that Jesus was not the kind of king that they were expecting and hoping for, they turned and became a part of those who put him on the cross. There is a warning in the triumphal entry narrative, followed by the passion narrative, for all of us to think about our expectations of God. Do we have certain expectations around our circumstances, our, our health or our finances? Such that when they're not met, we begin to turn. Because he didn't do what we wanted him to do, what we'd expected him to do. We need to think about that measure of our loyalty and allegiance. Is it associated with expectations that we've created, but not that God has promised? And let the warning of this text, even today, challenge us. So that's their expectations, but Jesus redefines those expectations. In fact, his entire ministry is one of redefinition. And he does this throughout his ministry, through his teaching and his actions, but people just don't understand. In fact, John tells us in verse 16 of chapter 12 that his disciples didn't comprehend all that was going on that day until after Jesus had been glorified. And it later in the story becomes abundantly clear that his disciples weren't on board with the new kingdom agenda, agenda as Jesus began to, to enact it and live it out. Jesus, if we remember back in John chapter 6, had been threatened to be made king by force after he fed the 5,000 and he withdrew. What's the next thing that happens after the crowd finds him again the next day? He teaches them that he is going to give his flesh for the life of of the world. He's redefining their expectations. Well, after the crowd declares him to be king in this moment, hails him as the one coming in the name of the Lord, the national deliverer, what is the first thing that Jesus does in verse 14 of John chapter 12? We're told that he goes out and finds a donkey, a young donkey, and he sits on it and rides on this donkey into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had, Jesus had walked the 65 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem. It wasn't as if somehow he was now too tired to keep walking. So he found an animal to ride on. No, no, this was a deeply symbolic action through which Jesus affirmed the crowd's acknowledgement of his kingship. And this is Jesus's moment where he makes this public declaration. Yes, I am a king. But at the same time, he tempers their nationalistic fervor by embodying the prophecy of Zechariah from chapter 9 and Zechariah verses 9 and 10, where he's described as the king coming to you, riding on a donkey, on a donkey humble 
and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is saying, yes, I am a king, but I'm not the kind of king that you think I am. This king in Zechariah 9 is to take away the war horse and the chariot from the people of God. Two typical modes of transportation for kings who are militaristic warriors. And he will speak peace, we're told, to the nations. Immediately after he rides in on a donkey, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus begins to talk about this is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he describes a grain of wheat that must fall into the ground and die if it is to bear much fruit. He's redefining the expectations around his kingship and his kingdom. After that, he, in chapter 13, he has dinner with his disciples just a few days later. And after dinner, he takes up a towel and wraps it around his waist. And then he washes his disciples' feet, taking this lowly place of a servant. He's redefining their expectations. Then he's betrayed that night. He's arrested and he's tried. And in his trial with Pilate, the representative of, of the power of the day, the subject is all about kingship. And Jesus continues to affirm that he is a king, but to change the expectations, to change the understanding. Pilate says, so you are a king. Verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? He asks. That had to be a mocking question from Pilate. How could you claim to be a king and be in this situation seemingly so powerless, so at the whims and the will of Pilate himself, of the Jewish leaders and of the crowd? Are you the king of the Jews, he asks. How could you be in this situation if you were a king? And Jesus gives an answer in verse 36 where he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Now, we need to be careful when we hear this word of Jesus. He's explaining how he ends up in this predicament as a king by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. What he doesn't mean is that my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. In fact, Jesus' kingdom has everything to do with this world. John's gospel is framed in the context of creation and new creation. It begins with in the beginning. It ends with the resurrection. It's all about God's faithfulness and fidelity to his creation. Jesus is, is saying, by saying my kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying, look, all I really care about is what happens in your prayer life or your spiritual life or in the church building on Sunday. No, no, no. Jesus is Lord of all. He's overall, and his kingdom is about renewing this world as God had always intended. And Jesus is bringing that about. Really, ever since the Enlightenment, we were told to privatize religion, to make it something that happens only in the privacy of our homes or our churches, not to bring it out into the public sphere where, thank you very much, reason could do just fine in solving the problems of society. And sometimes the church has capitulated to those enlightenment demands. But we must say no. Jesus is a public king. He claims to be Lord over all. The king of the Jews, if you knew the Jewish scriptures, was always to be the king of the world. 
to whom all the nations of the earth would bow in allegiance. That was God's intention and God's design. And the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish is not in any way to be diminished or, or cramped into one specific space. It is a cosmic kingdom over every dimension, political, economic, personal, social. Jesus is king. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian who was the prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905, has a very well-known quote, but it's worth repeating here. Quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. Jesus lays claim to everything. So... When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, it might better be translated, my kingdom is not out of this world or from this world, meaning that my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world that are bathed and baked in human sinfulness and rebellion and pride and greed and, and violence. All of these things that are opposed to the God of heaven and earth. It's not like that, Jesus is saying. It's different. And it's this difference that explains why in chapter 12 he finds a donkey and begins to redefine their expectations. It explains why he takes the towel up around his waist in chapter 13. It explains why he's found here in confrontation with Pilate in a, in a, in a trial about to go to the cross. It explains all of this, he says. Because he says, look, if, if my kingdom were of this world, his servants would have been fighting. In fact, that's what Peter tried to do at the beginning of chapter 18 when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember, right? Peter takes the sword out of his sheath and tries to cut off the head of the high priest's servant. He gets his ear only, but he was aiming, no doubt, for his head. And Jesus rebukes him. His kingdom will not be built by violence. It will be built by self-giving sacrificial love. This is how John the evangelist begins the second book of his gospel. Book one, the book of signs ends in chapter 12. Book two, the book of the cross and resurrection begins in chapter 13, verse one. And this is what John says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This would be the great act of love. And we see it in his going to the cross. And this is why he doesn't fight. This is why he doesn't defend himself. This is why, as Isaiah says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth because his kingdom would be established and would expand by acts of love, not violence. It's not like anything that we've ever encountered before. He is not a king like any kind of king that we've ever seen before. He is a king who will give his life for his subjects, even for his enemies. A king who establishes a kingdom where the marginalized and the unimportant are honored and given a place at his table, a king whose kingdom is defined by justice and mercy, a king whose kingdom bears witness to the truth, as he says in verse 37 to Pilate, 
Empires typically are not built on truth. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was not built on truth. They promised prosperity and peace if you came under their authority, but their kingdom was upheld by violence and oppression. And this is typical of the kingdoms of this world. Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his 1968 novel, In the First Circle, talks about Soviet authorities who would transport prisoners in meat trucks around Moscow. And it's his way of saying, look, the empire wants you to think that everything is going just fine, that the capital is being well supplied with quantities of meat, when in fact what's going on under the surface, behind the facade, underneath the propaganda, is the exploitation and oppression of its own citizens to prop up its aims and objectives. Jesus says, my empire is not like that. His empire, his kingdom is one that's bearing witness to the truth. The truth of the innocent dying for the guilty. The truth of the triumph of love and forgiveness over hatred and revenge. The truth of justice and mercy over injustice. The truth of God which shines the light into every area of darkness, in every sphere of his world, and in every corner of the human heart. The truth. This is what his kingdom bears witness to. He's a different kind of king. He's redefined the expectations. And now we get to this third part of establishment, really enthronement, the inauguration day. No pomp and circumstance, no dignitaries coming to see him. In fact, it's quite the opposite of what we know of as inauguration day. All, all of the people of importance are against him. And those that were on his side have fled from him. And he stands and takes the purple robe takes the crown of thorns, is hailed by the soldiers, his enemies, as king of the Jews, and has the inscription put upon the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek, so that all who pass by can understand. What, of course, these actors in the story of his passion don't realize is that, ironically, they are bearing witness to the truth in their mockery and insult. This is the moment of his being lifted up, the moment of his enthronement. This is the moment in which he casts out the ruler of this world as he says he would do in chapter 12, verse 31. This is the moment where Jesus takes his kingdom and his throne. Somehow he knew that in him the evil and sin and darkness of the world would be concentrated against him on that cross. And that in being the place, the representative Messiah of the people of God, that he would bear the darker part of the vocation of God's people to become the sin bearer. And that in doing so, evil would be vanquished and defeated. And that genuine forgiveness that we all long for as those who know we are broken, who live with guilt and shame, we long to hear the word, I forgive you. That he would earn that forgiveness for us at the cross and make it possible for us to have new life and to be reconciled to the God of heaven and earth. Jesus knew that all this would take place. Remember the testimony to him from John the Baptist at the beginning of the gospel. This is where it was always headed. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would be the sin bearer. This was not somehow plan B because things didn't go as, expect, as expected. 
This was always the plan. This is why he came. And this moment is his inauguration day, his enthronement day. How did he engage that, how, how, that day? How did he engage in battle against the true enemies? He persisted steadfastly in the way of love. Every time he chose to receive a blow, each time he took a further step toward Calvary's hill, as each ball of spit landed upon him, as the crown of thorns dug into his head, as drops of blood dripped down his brow, as each mocking insult and false charge was hurled against him and he received it, Jesus does not respond. He does not retaliate. He receives it, bears it. It's not that he couldn't have responded. In the synoptic accounts, he says he could call down legions of angels. But like a lamb led to slaughter, he does not open his mouth. Because this is exactly where he intends to be. This is exactly what he intends to be doing. This is the moment that he begins and establishes his kingdom. And how do we know the last words on his lips before he gives up his spirit in John 19 verse 30 are words of victory and triumph. It is finished. Mission accomplished. Darkness, evil, death, the devil, defeated and cast out. Forgiveness granted. New life begins. This is our king. This one seated on the donkey. This one who brings the peace by the shedding of his blood. This one who shows us what God is, who God is. The son of man will be glorified. God is on display as Jesus hangs on the cross, apparently defeated. That is the greatest depiction we could ever have of the God of love. The kingdom has begun. And it now begins to expand. This little seed, as Jesus told the parable, that will begin to grow and grow such that every bird of the air will rest in its branches. This little seed is now growing. As those who have been called into that kingdom begin to live a life of love just like Jesus lived. Begin to bear the darkness and pain and brokenness of the world upon ourselves as we serve pouring out our lives even unto death just like Jesus did. The kingdom is expanding and growing. A kingdom that addresses every dimension of human life and culture and society. Do you wonder who God is? Returning now to our questions as we close. And where he can be found and what he looks like. What he is like. Well, we've seen all along in the gospel according to John to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus hanging on the cross. And there you see God. And you see God in his manifest glory and excellencies on display. Do you wonder if God is trustworthy? Can you entrust your life to him? Well, look at Jesus. He who did not spare his, his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You can trust him with your vocation. You can trust him with your relationships. You can trust him with your money and your time. You can trust him with your life. And he invites you to the feast. 
so you can trust him for the little morsels that nag at your heart day in and day out. What about evil? All that we see in the world around us. Well, it's been defeated decisively and clearly. That's the Christian claim. Yes, we know that we're going to encounter it still, this defeated power, and that it still wreaks havoc upon our world. That is the vocation of the cross that Jesus entrusts to us. But it's been defeated. It will not prevail. And it will never have the last word. The kingdom will spread until one day the king returns and the, and the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What about the question, does God love you? When my wife was in middle school, she went to a youth group activity with some friends. And they had set up a bunch of rooms around the church in which they had different people who were trying to attack their faith. To give them a, a teaching experience of how might they respond. And in one of the rooms they had the devil himself. She and a bunch of kids went into that room and she was brand new in her faith in some ways. And Satan began to accuse them and tell them all the lies that they were believing as they followed Jesus. And Mandy just had this idea and she started to sing Jesus loves me out loud. And all the other kids who were with her began to sing the song with her. And all the adults and the leaders just began to weep. This simple reminder in the face of the accuser, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible, and I would say for the passion narratives make it so clear, tells me so. Do you wonder if God loves you? Look at the man hanging upon the cross. There is no clear statement of his love. No clearer way to banish the accuser than to remember the cross. He loves you so deeply. He could not love you anymore. As we contemplate this story throughout this week, may we be conquered by that love. And live in that love as his people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you and praise you. We are so unworthy of your march to the cross. How we praise you and thank you for all that you have done in our place. For the forgiveness for the liberation and rescue, for the new life. Oh, Lord Jesus, receive our love, our praise, our life, our all. We ask this in your name. Amen.